0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from The Reedy Clubby Show on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more, please go to 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby.
1: 27 minutes to 10 o'clock. Our lines are open for you. What is it that you want to ask Chris, our naked scientist? Our lines are open for you as of now on 021-446-0567, We've got some great questions left over from last week, and we will squeeze them in as we go along. But we'd love to hear from you to start the conversation as we get to know our bodies, our lives, our world much better. 21 446 Chris, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you so much. Now, I'm looking at the story about uh, a return trip to Mars. Uh, We're already talking about uh, 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 touring uh, our world, space, all of that. So you're saying that there's information that uh, a tour to Mars could eat up about two-thirds of our safe dose of radiation?
2: Yes, because one of the big priorities uh, amongst um, sort of people who are in the space world is they they want to see us not just walk on the moon but walk further afield and walk on other planets like mars but the big question is well how are we going to get there and that would inevitably involve some kind of rocket And if we're in a rocket, we're going to be there for some time. So if we're drifting around through space going towards Mars, and Mars is a cool 560 million kilometers away, that's going to mean quite a long journey in space, at least 180 days. So how much radiation is a person going to be exposed to during that journey? And there's a paper in Science this week which has actually answered this question because it took advantage of the transmission or the the transit of the curiosity rover between the earth and mars so if you remember last year in uh, august curiosity started driving around on the surface of mars this is this big mini cooper sized um rover that they've deployed down on mars to explore the surface and look for places where life might be able to have been living at some point in the past That rover has got a radiation detector on it Mm -hmm. and so the scientists have got the information off of that radiation detector while the craft was in transit between the Earth and Mars and so they've rebuilt the profile of how much radiation the rover was exposed to in space and if the rover were a person they would have had an equivalently high dose. It turns out that uh, these measurements show that an astronaut making a one-way trip to Mars would get about a third of their safe working lifetimes worth of radiation just in that 180-day journey to Mars. If they were going to come back again, they'd get the other third, which means that if they then wandered around on the surface of Mars for a little while, they'd probably get the other third. So basically one mission, you could use up your entire safe working Ah. lifetimes worth of radiation exposure. So this tells us that we're going to have to think very creatively about how to shield astronauts. Mm,
1: Very interesting indeed. Thank you very much, Chris. I have an SMS here uh, from last week. Somebody wants to know why is it that we lose our appetite often when we're sick?
2: This is because of immune chemicals called cytokines. When you are ill, your immune system sends signals to other parts of the immune system, telling it how to fight the infection off by secreting cytokines. And these are effectively hormones. And they have the side effect of changing the way that all other tissues in the body behave and respond. This includes your brain and it puts your temperature up very often which is why you run a fever and it also has effects on how much you want to eat and how much you want to do so it tends to make you feel uh, lethargic so that you tend to rest and it also tends to make you feel less hungry for various reasons but it's, it's an appetite suppressing signal and people who get cancer also lose a lot of weight And this is also thought to be because there is an immune response to the cancer, albeit a not very good one, and the result is that the person then suppresses their appetite via the same mechanism.
1: Okay. And uh, there is another SMS that says, uh, why does a camera flash reflect a red light on the eye when a picture is taken?
2: Okay. I think what is going on with, with red eye is that when the camera is first looking at a person, If if it's dark in the room, which is why you need a flash, the person is likely to have large, open pupils. And when the camera flash goes off, light goes into the eye and illuminates the red of the back of the eye, which is where the retina is, but there's also a thing called the choroid, which is the very dense blood flow to the back of the eye. So you have a lot of light going into this eye through this big, open pupil, which illuminates that choroid and reflects light back out of the front of the eye towards the camera and because blood is red it looks red so you're seeing the inside of the person's eye Mm. back of their eye and when you have a red eye reduction on a camera you'll notice it sends a series of little pulses of bright light before it takes the picture and they have the effect of triggering the eye to think that it's in a much brighter place than it is so it closes the pupil right down and this limits the amount of of light that can go into the eye therefore it limits the amount of light that can come back out and make the
1: eyes look red.
0: Let's go straight to the
1: lines then. Sharon, hi there.
0: Hello. Hi, Hmm? Reedy. Hi, Chris. Um, I have asked uh, the question before. I'd like to know what your answer is. Um, I am photophobic, and I'd like to know what uh, your take is, Chris, on why I can't see into light at all.
2: Hmm. Hello, Sharon. Hi, Chris. Uh, when you say you can't see in the I light can't at all think, like, d- it's
0: become progressively worse over years and I have to wear dark glasses day and night now
2: okay so when you go outside and it's just too, a bit too bright for you just not feels a bit too dazzlingly bright,
0: bright. It's a bit hectic like I have to wear solar shields and uh, my car is darkened um, oh dear what's about your skin
2: does does your skin also no, respond
0: So, it's just a visual um, thing. There's nothing wrong with my retina at all, nor my optic Ah, nerve.
2: Hmm. Okay. Uh, To be honest, I'm at a slight loss since it sounds like if an ophthalmologist has had a look in your eye and said your retina is healthy, um, I'm I'm at a slight loss. There there are a number of reasons why someone might experience an an experience of very, very bright light. The eye has um, its own inbuilt light control system in the form of the size of the pupil, and if the pupil is a bit too large, too much light can go in, why would the pupil be too large? Well, perhaps it's not constricting enough, or you might have been put on medication, or some people might be taking medications to make their pupil a bit too big. That would also cause blurry vision, so I'd be surprised if that was the case. Some people also have a problem with the pigment epithelium in the eye. There is a dark layer in the back of the eye which soaks up light, and stray light and it's there to protect the eye from uh, excess light and it means that the rods don't get overstimulated during the daytime. Some people have a deficiency in that which can lead to overstimulation. I, it sounds like that's not the case for you because they're telling you it's all healthy so to be honest Sharon I'm going to have to say beyond those broad generalizations I've made I can't help you. Okay
0: thank you Chris. Appreciate Sorry I
2: will, I, will, I will have a think about it but I have no instant answer for you. I do apologize. I
0: appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. Bye. All right, thank you very much Sharon. Sorry about that. Our lines are open for you on 021 011-883-0702. We are taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. Um Chris, I have a Okay, let's go to Richard first and then I'll ask this question in a moment. Richard in Parktown. Hi. Yeah, hi. Uh
0: Chris, my question is Um, Bearing in mind that a fertilized ovum uh, grows on Earth with gravity uh, as a a constant, Uh, what is the take on how we're going to breed in a non-gravity scenario when traveling long distances once we've fertilized eggs?
2: Hi, Richard. Um, you're absolutely right to raise the question of what is the role of gravity because life on Earth has evolved in the presence of gravity and therefore many many sorts of forms of life do rely on gravity. And plants are no exception because as anyone who's ever planted a seed and been surprised that the shoots come up and the roots come down and asked how um, will know, this this occurs all over the place. And the answer is that plants have got little spirit levels inside themselves because starch grains settle down and press on a skeleton inside the cell telling the cell what's up and what's down and that kind of ovum grows that way now human babies when they're developing and other animals and mammals that kind of thing they don't need that kind of influence because they're developing in a three-dimensional environment and they're bobbing around once they get big in water And when you've got something which is made of water bobbing around in water, the thing in the water is largely weightless. So as a result, it doesn't have the same huge impact. The other question is, well, what happens to things like sperm then? And NASA have actually done experiments. I think they used sea urchin sperm to see if in space sperm would work, and it does. So I think we're pretty happy that we could effectively use what we produce to reproduce, if you see what I mean. Um, The... The slightly bigger difficulty um, would be the actual physical act of reproduction, I would say, because obviously when you're drifting around in space, there's nothing to um, hold you down. So you have to hold yourself down, and this may limit some of the things that are possible. On the other hand, the mind boggles as to what else might be possible in space.
1: Chris, I have an SMS here about Eric, Is, how do you say his name, Weinstein, the mathematician, uh, the physicist and myth- uh, mathematician, uh, you spell his name, W-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Eric. And uh, somebody wants to know what you think about his new theory of uh, of physics. And there's another email about uh, his mathematical theory that purports to explain why the universe works the way it does. Can you tell us a bit more about his work, maybe?
2: I never heard of him. I'm really sorry. I oh, don't okay. know about Eric. Uh, if you send me the details, or if people want to tweet at Naked Scientists, or email Chris at the Naked dot com with uh, his details, I'll, I'll try and take a look. Okay. But I haven't come across his uh, unique theory yet.
1: Okay, no, that's fine. I've, I also just received this SMS and thought I'd Google it quickly. We'll we'll see what we can send to you, and then uh, start a conversation going. Mike and Steve, stay on the line. We'll chat to you in a moment.
0: The Naked Scientist On Talk Radio 702 And 567 Cape Talk With Ridi Clappy.
1: We're taking your calls on 021-446-0567 11 Mike in Somerset West Hi
0: Hi Ridi mm. my, my question for um, your clever scientist there is Amalgam in fillings It's uh, I don't know if it's true but Apparently, it can leave residual metal in your body and can lead to other complications. Um, can Can I have an opinion from him?
2: Hello, Mike. The answer is that amalgam contains both mercury and silver. So it's a mixture of the two. And there is a very tiny amount of delivery around the body, but it is very, very tiny and you're almost certainly going to be exposed to more mercury from many other sources over the course of a lifetime than from a filling. Mm. Uh, so it's regarded as a relatively good compromise between something that does a job extremely well and carries a, a low risk of being toxic. So we're, we're pretty happy that there are other ways to do damage to yourself beyond what might be in a filling. So probably can reassure you mm-hmm. that it's all going to be okay.
1: I'm relieved as well, Mike. Thank you. Let's go to Steve in Cape Town. Hi.
0: Hi, guys. Uh, My question is about sort of atoms. Um, Everything's made of an atom, a rock, a piece of metal, a car, us, whatever, all made of atoms. Now, atoms sort of made up of a proton and a neutron or whatever spinning around each other. Now, if something's very old, like a fossil or a rock or whatever... Are those atoms that are in those rocks and fossils still spinning around each other billions and billions of years? Do they ever die, or do they or they just keep spinning around? Or,
2: Hello, Steve. Um, the answer is that the atoms in your body, which make up you, and we're not talking about the radioactive ones because there'll be a few of those, but the atoms that are in there are atoms that were either made during the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, that's the hydrogen, And the other atoms that are in you, with the exception of the tiny bit of helium, because there might be a tiny bit of that, and, and a little bit of lithium that's in you, everything else has been made in a star. And that will be billions of years ago. So atoms, when they get made, are made under very intense conditions... They're made by effectively taking simpler things like hydrogen and merging them together by fusion and making a bigger and bigger element, a heavier and heavier element. But once they've been made, unless they're radioactive they don't break down because elements can't be broken down. So the atoms we have, uh, we just rearrange to make different combinations of atoms or molecules, and we do jobs with them. And then when we die, they're recycled into the environment, and when our planet dies, it's recycled into its environment, and when our sun dies, everything that's in it will be recycled into its environment, and it'll end up as someone else in the future. So, no, those atoms that that you find in a fossil, they're billions of years old by definition, and so are you.
1: Francois in Alberton, hi.
0: Hi, good morning, Reddy, morning, Chris. Um, if the moon has a significant impact on tides through its magnetic field, why does the moon then not have gravity?
2: Hello. Um, a couple of things just to put right here. The moon doesn't influence tides with a magnetic field. It's actually its gravitational field. The moon is a big object in space, and big things that have a lot of mass will have a gravitational effect. So the Moon does have gravity. It's got less of a gravitational effect than the Earth, because it's smaller than the Earth, but it does have a fairly substantial gravitational field, and because it's quite close to the Earth, the water on the surface of the Earth is attracted towards the Moon, and you get a bulge of water on the side of the Earth closest to the Moon, you also get a bulge of water on the opposite side of the Earth, furthest from the moon, because that water is least attracted there and the planet, on the other hand, moves as one, so you get two tides a day. But tides are not to do with with magnetism, they're to do with gravity, and the moon is gravitationally active.
1: Here's an SMS here, it says, No matter what colour bubble bath I buy, why is the foam always white? This bugs the living daylights out of me every day, says an SMS
2: yeah we had one on this recently as well didn't we and the answer to this is that the bubble bath has a dye added to it to make it look a nice color in the bottle but the thing that makes the bubbles is some kind of soap or detergent solution. And this has the effect of reducing the stickiness of water molecules so that you can make thin films of water. This is called a surfactant effect. And when you create the bubble, the film of bubble liquid is nanometers thick. It's really, really thin. And the reason you see a rainbow color in the bubble is because there will be multiple layers of films of water and light can go into the bubble and bounce off different surfaces in these layers and then what's called interfere with each other. Some of the light adds together and makes a brighter colour, other lights cancel out to make a darker patch and that's why you see that rainbow pattern. But basically the film is so thin that there isn't room in there to put a big bulky dye molecule or at least enough big bulky dye molecules to actually create anything other than just a transparent
1: bubble. Let's go to Raphael in Santon. Good morning to you.
0: Hello, Rudy. Mm. Um, I would just like to ask, what's the use for a man having nipples? I don't know if it sounds weird, but I never knew, really.
1: Do your nipples irritate you? Do they get on your tits? No,
0: <laughs> no not really. I just, like, I just wanted to know.
1: Oh, uh, okay.
2: Chris... My dad... I'm glad you said that, Rudy. <laughs> Uh, the reason that men have nipples is because when nipples form, when we're developing inside our mothers, they uh, we, we haven't actually d- taken on our male or female outcome or um, appearance yet. So although you have the genes that are going to tell you to become male or female because that's determined at the minute of conception, when a sperm and an egg merge their chromosomes, the initial formation of the body occurs to pattern the body and and decide which bits are going to go where before the other sexual characteristics are manifest. And the nipples are just programmed genetically to occur on a certain segment of the body because the body develops initially as a flat sheet of cells which then curls up into a tube and there is a structure running the length of that tube which basically signals to the tissue above it saying you are on this patch of the body, run the following Developmental program and develop the following things. And in the bit that corresponds to your upper chest, there's a program that says make some nipples, and it does that regardless of whether you're male or female. So men get nipples by default, uh, alongside girls. And it's only when the hormones kick in during pregnant uh, pregnancy, during puberty, that the tissue locally in the fat pads under by the breast then respond to those hormones and enlarge in women but not so much in men. Men can use their nipples, and in fact, if uh, you take the right drugs, you can take hormones that a woman would have when she is pregnant Mm -hmm. or or, um, after a baby's been born, or you can also stimulate the nipples. I'm told that fairly dedicated stimulation on a daily basis with a toothbrush can induce lactation in men. And some male some male species, males in some species can lactate. There's a certain kind of bat called a diac bat, which does lactate, Male, mail and I think it does about a third of the breastfeeding duties so I bet there's a lot of women out there that are saying god I wish my husband could do that
1: yeah well I'm so certainly going to make that request or demand when I get home (laughs) today must sign on on the way home (laughs) is it Italo in Melville
0: that's correct yes hi hi Chris um Hmm? just want to know I'm driving into work this morning and I see most of the trees are losing their leaves and there are others that uh, you know don't lose the leaves what's the difference why
2: well, there's a number of aspects to this. Some trees, uh, which are imported species, which have come from parts of the world where there's a strong seasonality and are deciduous, they actually have a clock running in the tree which knows what time of year it is. And so they time their activity and their growth and then their ditching of leaves to coincide with a winter time. Other trees don't do that and they just have a continuous cycle of growth and they lose some leaves from one part of the tree while another part is still growing. Trees that grow in the tropics tend to be more like that because they don't have to lose their leaves. Why Why do trees lose their leaves? They've evolved to do that probably because... It's A leaf is a very high-maintenance thing. Leaves are expensive for plants to maintain. They are very, very useful in summer because that's how you make your energy via photosynthesis. But in winter, then they're more likely to lead to damage because you're not going to have much light to photosynthesize. You've got this big leaf area on the tree, so you're going to catch lots of wind, and that could make the tree get damaged or blown over. And you've also got to keep the leaves active and pump chemicals into them and make new things in them, which costs you energy. And if you're not getting that energy back from the light that's available... not not much point in doing it. So that's why plants in some cases have evolved to ditch their leaves in winter and then regrow them the next year because it's energetically a much better way for them to be successful. Whereas plants in the tropics where the weather might be extreme at any one time of year but is generally always nice and sunny, it makes sense to have evolved to have leaves that are active all the time, at least on some part of the tree, because then you can grow the best
1: thank you very much italo thank you for the calls everybody your sms's your tweets and your emails we'll podcast all of this uh for you just after the show chris have a lovely weekend
2: thanks really thanks everybody have a wonderful weekend see you next time Ta-ta-ta.
1: thinking about
2: your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that's investing 20 billion pounds in r&d over the next two years